Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. It's good to be together. And I always love hearing uh, the stories. One of the things that we do uh, around Port City, whenever we have a lot of our meetings, staff meetings and different uh, kind of meetings doing uh, various plannings and you know, getting ready for uh, all the things that, that kind of go on around here. And um, we always have a time of where we tell stories. Uh, and and what's, been, what's been so incredible to hear over the last, particularly the last um, you know, five or six years is that the stories aren't about how many kids are at Tsunami or about how many people did this or how many, it's a, it's a name and it's a story about that person's encounter with our church in a particular way. And it's gotten really, really personal. And one of the things that uh, you know, I treasure, we, we, this month, uh, September, uh, 24 years ago, we met in a house to talk about what Port City Church might be like one day. Uh, it was the very genesis of, of this thing. I was 29 years old, uh, had you know, you, basically just a, a hope that something might happen out of this. And certainly you don't know what it is. But I remember you know, in those early days, just trying to wrestle with what we were and who we were gonna be. And then as it grew, it just became very fast, uh, it became very, you know, get this, per, or, you know, here's a program, here's this, you sign up and you, everything became very programmatic. And so it took us a long time to kind of catch up to that. And over the last five or six years, um, you know, we've just really worked hard to get really personal and relational so that the way in which you will engage at this church, certainly there are things and systems that are in place that are important. But more than likely, your encounter is gonna be with a person and you're gonna tell them something about your story and then we're gonna work really hard to connect with you and connect you to, you as well, you to what is happening in and through our church. Um, I love the fact, you know, if you're, I know in, in Newburn and Leland in here, everybody's wearing name tags. I don't have, my, my name's Mike, by the way. And um, because we, we want that, we want to be personally recognized uh, that in a place where it's large and there's a lot of people and it's, there's complexity, that it's, it's very easy to just become a cog in a machine. But we are actually a body, we're a church, and the metaphor of that um, is a family. We wanna talk about this very directly in both what's expected and what you can expect uh, from us over these next um, few weeks. You know, I, I, we've, I love the metaphor for this, or the, the titling for this particular series, A Common Table. Um, you know, the, the central metaphor throughout the scriptures uh, in the Bible, when, it, when, when they're describing God's activity with his people, was often a meal or a table or a feast. In the very beginning in the garden, right, God put down, uh, he put human beings in a garden, and he said, of any tree in the garden you may freely eat, that communion with God was gonna encompass some way in which we share a meal together, share his provision together. Uh, as the Israelites were led through the wilderness, it was manna that was demonstrated as God's faithfulness to them, their provision, God's provision for them both physically and also it would be symbolically when he would teach and say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that I say, by my commands and what I, the way I lead you. 
Um, there's the Passover meal, the uh, meal of Shabbat and, and uh, Shabbat and all the other meals that go along with uh, how the festivals were celebrated. All designed to be done at a common table. Covenants were made over a meal and reconciliation was sealed over a meal. And in our, our culture, we sort of lost the aspect of what it means or what it is like to have a meal together and sort of the importance of that. Obviously, we know about family dinners, but we also know that family dinners look a lot different than what they used to be. Now, I drive a, um, a 1989 Volvo station wagon, uh, which is unique in of itself because it's old, but the great thing is it was, it's from the 80s, which makes it super awesome. And, um, but there's something really unique about my car other than the fact that it's a 1989 Volvo station wagon. Uh, and if you were in my car, which I would not invite you into my car because it's not probably safe to drive, but so I don't really have people ride with me, but I drive it um, when I'm by myself. But if you get in my car, it has no cup holders. I know y'all can't believe that, can you? How do you drive a car without a cup holder? Well, you spill a lot of coffee in your lap, that's for sure. Um, but it's interesting because y'all, you can't even fathom that. Like you need like 2.5 cup holders for every person that's gonna be in your car, right? To hold all the drinks. Cause we're, that's just where we, that's how we, we, we eat. It's where we, we, we have all of our stuff there. And what was interesting, I was asking a friend of mine, he's, he was uh, worked for Volvo back in the day. I said, why don't they have, you know, cup holders? He said, well, in Sweden, they go, why would you ever need a cup holder in your car? Your car is to drive. It's like, no, our car contains our whole lives in America. We eat there, we sleep there, we do all the things there. And uh, so it's a foreign thing. And this is kind of what's happened. Like everything is so fast and so in a hurry and so convenient and so efficient that meals, even the way our relationship with food often is it's, it's energy, it's fuel for our bodies to accomplish and to purpose. And that wasn't the case, uh, sort of in the ancient world. And it may not be the way it was designed that we're to actually commune together, a common table. It's the thing that I want to um, sort of look at and see what, sort of binds us or connects us together. Am I on? Let's try this one. There we go, that's a little bit more orangey. The thing that connects us together, and if I'm drawing my little people right, I believe that um, in the old, uh, the old world, right, you didn't, you didn't uh, sit at a table in chairs, you sat, uh, reclined at a table like Crisscross applesauce. So that's, can you see that? It's kind of crisscross apple. You see it? And so they would uh, sort of join and be together in these ways at a, at a common table, something that would connect them together. Put a little legs on there. How's that? There we go. Some food. I want to get the idea. That's what happens to me. So there's this, 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 this idea of a common table. And for us, what I want for us to consider is that a common table um, reflects both our belonging, and this is the imagery, but also the invitation to belong. It's both the fact that you are welcome and you belong in this place and also the posture we extend that welcome to all those who are not yet here. It's a posture of, of community. It's also a posture of extending ourselves for other people, to give ourselves. It's an extension of our reach. It's both of these things. 
Uh, when N.T. Wright, uh, he's a New Testament scholar, he says this, that when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death is all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. He invited us to participate in something. There's at least three reasons I wanna give you why I think this is a great picture for us. I want us to consider some things. That when God determined his vision, even at the end of times, we'll be gathered around a feast, a meal, to, as this culmination and consummation of all of human history. And the meal is a leveling place. Whenever you share a meal with someone, we all need what is offered in the exact same way. Regardless of where you're coming from, we all need what is offered in the same exact way. A meal, especially a nice meal, is both symbolic of abundant provision, but also it's a declaration of dependency. That even a nice meal, you can have a nice meal tonight and you can eat so much and you'll still need another one tomorrow. That's why it's daily bread. Right, it's this idea that we learn how to both experience abundant provision and enjoy both what is provided for us, enjoy the way in which it's provided, enjoy the community in which we embrace it. But it's also our declaration that we are dependent. It levels the playing field of that. Whether you're rich or poor, have or have not, whether you're in a tough season, or it, it just levels it out. We all need what is offered in the same exact way. We all need it to nourish us. Number two, a meal is a common space. We're in the same place for the same reason, even if we're coming from different backgrounds or perspectives or beliefs. At the table, we get to experience the reality of what is in, com what is in common, that we're all going to share a meal, we're all going to eat together, to dine together. A meal is also a family space, right? At the, at the dinner table, you're treated like family. It's kind of a shared identity. You're welcoming. You pull up a chair and you belong there. And a family table has responsibilities. You have to clean up and you have to participate like everybody else. It's a family experience. It's a family space. And so all this I want us to consider as we think about this, this metaphor, this picture of the church. When I sat down, you know, 25 years ago, probably 26 years ago, I was dreaming about trying to understand what God wanted me to do with my life and this, this picture of a church, this idea of a church just kept, kept resonating over and over, in me, over with me. Um, I wanted to be a youth pastor uh, first and foremost. And then when I thought that was probably not gonna be what I would do, um, the idea of being a pastor of a church was not super appealing to me. And I thought, well, let's, let's, let's do a youth camp. And I thought we were doing a youth camp. So I thought if I can travel around and speak, that would be awesome. And there's a few reasons why it's awesome. Because one, if you travel around and speak, you only really need one message. You just show up and you deliver it. And I was like, man, that was awesome. Well, it's good because, and, and you also get to show up and you're always kind of ushered into a place and people talk to you. Most people think that you're, you're, you're awesome in that. And then you get to leave and, and you don't, and it's, I'm not knocking anybody who does this. It's a great thing. I'm just saying, as I was wrestling this, the reasons I wanted to do it were for all those reasons that I could stay disconnected from anything. And I kept coming back to this idea of the church and the church and the church and the church. And the more I read, I took my Bible out and I just listed out all, I was 20, 28 years old, 27 years old. I took all the passages I could find that talked about the Bible. A lot of them, you know, through the gospels and a lot of them, these little letters in the back um, that Paul wrote to these, these churches in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia. And I just began to go through them. And I just took my computer out and I'd read a passage and say, here's the implications on the church. And I kept noticing things where Jesus would say things like, I'm going to build 
Upon this foundation, this rock, I'm gonna build my church, my ecclesia. I'm gonna build it. And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I would see all these letters where the church was just emphasized. And I just thought maybe perhaps God, you know, really intends for his church to be his means in this world. And it's something that all of us have to, to wrestle with. And as we were preparing for this series, Clay, our campus pastor, he, he says, do you realize that the, the single most common way that God's people referred to one another in the New Testament is as brothers and sisters? The single most predominant way when, when any of the writers are talking about the church, they always refer to God's people, the followers of Jesus, as brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters this, brothers and sisters that. It's a family. And make no mistake about it, this is how we are intended to live. I was looking back through a lot of our, our series we've done around the church, and one of the things that resonates with me, and it still does this day, we wrote this probably seven or eight years ago, is that it stands to reason that if you're a family of origin, can cause deep wounds, which we all know that's true. The family that you were born into can create some really deep woundedness in your life. If your family of origin can create deep wounds, then perhaps your family of redemption can bring about deep healing. That the family that you were born again into could bring something about in such a way redemptively that would bring healing to that which gets lost in oftentimes in the world in which we live. And this becomes the hope of the church and how we are a family of God. Now the challenge with this is I got two brothers and I don't need any more, right? You get the idea? We get the people around us that we like. This is our tribe. We all think the same, believe the same, want the same things. And then everybody's gonna just kind of deal with it. And Jesus comes in with a different agenda. And it's a powerful agenda. And it's a way for us to, to live as beneficiaries of his grace. And we are brought into a way of relating to one another based on a common identity, based upon a common way in which we give our lives to. I love this. Uh, Greg Coles is actually a friend of ours. Uh, he's a single guy. And he writes this from a perspective of a single person and it's, it's beautiful the way he talks about the church and what this idea means for us, especially in a context where a lot of us have grown up in the church where, where marriage and, and children, all those are highlighted. We live in a culture where people are increasingly, you know, not married or not married yet or whatever that might be, or they're, uh, you know, don't have children for various reasons. And, and I'm not saying that it's, those things are important. Don't get me wrong. We value those things. But I love the way he explains this and it comes from a perspective that I think we need to heed. Uh, he writes this, for Jesus' disciples, biological parenting isn't meant to be the only way we leave a legacy and build a family. It's not even meant to be the primary way that we leave a legacy and build a family. Jesus treats the family of God as something much more substantial than just a pretty metaphor. It is a concrete claim, a literal state of being. Those who follow God together are family to one another. And so this is what we have to consider. My foundational assumption in this series not, doesn't really sound radical uh, to us at first glance, but I want us to press on it. My fundamental assumption is that the world actually needs the church, all right? That's it. Now, I recognize that there's a lot of stories, you know, the church, that we don't, the world doesn't need another church scandal. You know, the world doesn't need, a, a, you know, a, a cool people, you know, producing cool content for other cool people, right? We don't need any more of that. 
And the world doesn't even need the church because of the good things that it does. The world needs the church because it is the way in which God intends for his love to be demonstrated and to permeate the world in which we live for his redemptive purposes. I've read these passages over and over and over and over again. Passages, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, all of them over and over and over again. And I'll tell you what I've noticed, and I started noticing this more and more over the last five or six years, as I've been trying to say, Lord, can you give me vision for what the church is to be? No question, this church outpaced my vision for what I thought the church would be years and years ago. And there's a very scary thing that happens when, you fi- when what you dreamed about finally happens. You know what happens when what you dreamed about happens? You hold on to it. And you hold on to it and you try to preserve it and you try to keep it from being any different. You try to keep it from, you know, and then when, when things move, you try to go back to the way it was. You try to hold on. And whenever you find yourself doing that, it's usually the kiss of death for almost anything. What I have found about God and about his faithfulness is that he is always revealing and unfolding. And every time we get a new sense of what God is doing, it is met with the exact same fear, at least in my life, as it was 25 years ago. Right? I still feel the same sense of pit in my stomach, the fear of moving ahead, the fear of, you know, of pushing these places that I, that I felt then as God continues to unfold his dream and his intention for the church. But the world needs a church because this is the way. And I don't mean this like the way we do it, but the church, his body, his family is the way in which his love is expressed in the world. There's an interesting thing in this prayer that I've been using in the last series and it's, um, it's here and, and I've noticed this over and over again. The more I kind of read and, and, and meditate and reflect on these prayers of Paul in particularly in Ephesians. But the one we looked at, right, he says he prays that the eyes of our hearts will be open and he wants us to grow in our knowledge and understanding and all this. And then at the very end, he starts to talk about the strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and when he seated him in the heavenly realms above all the rulers and authorities. He talks, starts to talk about rule and reign. And then he says this in verse 22, and God has placed all things under his feet. And he has appointed him to be head over everything for the church, for the ecclesia, for the assembly of those who follow Jesus, for everything, uh, uh, sorry, over everything for the church, which is his body, which we've all heard this, which is his body, the fullness of him. So his body is the fullness of him who does what? who fills everything in every way. Now that's either hyperbole or it is a high call for your life and mine. For you and I to think about that his fullness in me and in you and what he's doing somehow in this, this, this larger sort of space that we share and enjoy and live as brothers and sisters within, that somehow this actually moves its way outward into the world around us. That his body, you and I, is the fullness of all that Jesus is. We spent the whole last series learning that. But his body also brings, we bring that fullness into everything and every place that we are. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. And this gives me a lot of 
of hope and vision, and it puts a little bit of weight on our shoulders. Eugene Peterson translated uh, the, the Bible, and he uses a more modern version known as the message, and here's what he says. Same verses. Jesus is in charge of it all, and he has the final word on everything. And at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. This is stunning. This is either good for me because it gives me job security or there's something really we need to pay attention to here. The church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. We say this a lot, but one of the things I want us to get really used to hearing and reflecting on is that we, we you and I, as his image bearers, we bear the image of his integrity, right? We, we, have, to, we have to reflect him accurately. We bear his image, the image uh, with integrity, right? The integrity of his image to reflect him the way he actually is. This requires work, it requires thinking, it requires submission and surrender to all of those things. And we also are to bear the influence of his love that our lives act individually, but also collectively on the world around us. And according to that passage, this influence is to fill everything and everywhere, we're to touch everything. We're to move into the world and all these places and spaces where this happens. And so we gather and we work and we cooperate and we contribute, right? As we offer ourselves to Christ and to one another, we literally flesh out God's intention uh, within the world in which we live. Uh, Megan uh, Good is a scholar and a pastor. She, um, I heard her, we run a podcast together and I heard her uh, say this quote and it is, it is profound. And she said this, she said that the main politic of the church is Jesus is Lord. The, the, the fundamental thing that we gather around and declare is that the Lordship of Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And the main place this politic gets played out or expressed is within the church where we voluntarily give our allegiance to Jesus. Like this is the posture for which we live. And this is what we began to see back in the, Ernest says, it's really interesting, right? The world needs the church. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but church attendance is in decline. Have y'all noticed this? Like in general, there's a whole movement uh, in our country of the de-churched. And a lot of these come from both conservative right evangelical churches. They also come from progressive left churches. They're de-churched. And so there's this whole movement around this. There's, there's documentaries on megachurches and there's, all, there's just all sorts of things. We, we certainly live in a post-Christian culture. For those of you who are still, it is, we, are, we are beyond that. This is like Europe was 30 years ago, right? The, the, the secularization, the way we think about education, all these things. We are post-Christian, certainly. And now we're living in an era where there's a de-churching. And this has been going on for about 20 years. COVID like sped this up like very quickly. And some of it is because people attend church more sporadically, 
right? Uh, you can come, you know, here and there. And if the weather's nice, you can go there. You can watch online. You can, so there, there's, some, and there's some advantages to that, right? This is not all bad stuff. It's just the condition in which we live. And this isn't a ploy to go, oh, please come back to church. Um, it's a, what's interesting is I read this article yesterday uh, in the Atlantic and there was some research done around the de-churching of America. And what they said has happened, the more people have left the church, the more they have gravitated towards the political polls. And the product of de-churching isn't that the churches are empty, it's that the culture is completely polarized to the far right and the far left. And if you listen to a lot of the interviews, that's exactly what you'll find. That what's happened, and there's just a lot of great research around this, that what's happened is the American political system has become the new church in America. Now people are leaving that. It's like you just see this over and over again. And what I think for me, what gives me hope, and this, I can't speak for us, but for us, is we get to sit in this really unique place to bring something distinct to bear on the world around us. And it will happen based on what it is that we believe that we actually have in common. In the very earliest days of the church, they're recorded for us in the book of Acts. And this is how Luke records this in Acts chapter two. Some of you may have heard this passage before, but it's used to sort of describe what the church was like in the earliest days. And there's been this big sort of movement where the gospel is going out and people responding to it, both Jews and Gentiles. There's a lot of complexity, a lot of confusion, and they're just trying to organize themselves together to figure out how to both live out this message and also steward it well. And in chapter two of, uh, chapter, uh, verse 42 of chapter two, he says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to prayer. There was this very ordinary thing that was happening around tables and learning together and processing together. And it says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that was performed by the apostles, the things that were happening. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They were all together and they said, this is what we share. This is what we hold fast to. And it was specifically, right, the, the teachings and the, 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 the message of the gospel what we would say is this idea that Jesus is Lord, he holds our allegiance. And then out of this is the expression. Out of this sort of considering and holding everything in common, they sold their property and their possessions and they gave to anyone who had need. Now, what I'm not saying, I wanna be really careful. I'm not saying you should go out and sell your stuff and give it to the church. Like that's not what I'm saying um, yet. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. What they were doing is they were making, they were arranging their lives in such a way as to ensure provision and protection and help and availability to one another. And then they wanted to create ways to make this sustainable as this thing continued to take off. So I don't want us to get caught up in the semantics as much as to say, when we, Port City is not the only way to do church. We're trying to do things in a way that allow us to, to do and to participate in these kinds of things but to make sure that we move into the areas that God calls us to move into and to do it in meaningful ways. Not to give lip service to it, but to value the dignity of people who serve or struggle in these marginalized places. That's part of God's heart for the world and it has to be part of our heart as well. We'll talk more about that later. 
But he goes on, he says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This common table, praising God and enjoying favor with all people. They lived in a way that sort of they brought to bear something distinct and desirable in the world around them. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now here's what I want us to get and I want to, I want to get to something. What they had in common was what they were willing to devote themselves to. That's what it is. And the way this works, the way this happens, right, is that we live, we're, we're to live as those who give him allegiance in our lives and then give ourselves towards one another. Those who are willing to live in his forgiveness as those who are forgiven and trust him and learn to trust him. This is gonna continue to unfold in front of us to arrange our lives, to live out of that fullness and then to extend that to one another and to bring it to every part of the world in which we've been given access and influence. And the devotion that we are willing to give is what will create the common union and our shared identity becomes the foundation, right, for the way in which we relate to one another. Lots of things can bridge this gap. If I talked about Depeche Mode, somebody'd be like, oh, dude, Mike's awesome. If I talked about surfing, somebody'd be like, oh, I could connect with Mike. If I talked about the Tar Heels, you would say, oh, Mike is so awesome, <laughs> right? We can connect around a lot of things to build our tribes. And whatever we are devoted to will create the foundation for our shared identity. And the whole thing is that Jesus is Lord and this gets played out as we are willing to give our allegiance to him and that becomes the common table. Listen, in a, at, the, at the table, right, people come with all kinds of different perspectives and opinions and beliefs and I get it. And people are always showing up here looking for something. And what they're looking for is this place of connection to say, can I belong here? And let me tell you very clearly, can you belong here? The answer to that question is 100% absolutely yes. And let me tell you why. Because what we believe, I believe is what the scriptures teach us, I believe this is Jesus's intention that we think in our minds that somehow if you become a particular way, then you can have a seat at the table. When the exact opposite is true, if you get your seat at the table and you learn to belong there, you will then become the way in which you've been intended and created to be. But it is belonging proceeds. What most of us need is not someone to do what we want them to do for us. We need to commit to something in such a way as to contribute to it. And commitment is a lost concept in our culture. Right, to sit at the table requires, or, or requires responsibility from you. People come to the church and what they're looking for is something relational, some place to be seen and valued and validated, whatever perspective they're coming from. And we say that this is not only a place where you can belong, but it is an open invitation to you to show up and pull up a chair, but recognize that belonging comes with responsibility because we bear the integrity of God's image. We're responsible for filling the world with how he intends for the world to be filled. We have to submit to him as our Lord in every part of our lives. 
We hear all the time that we're looking for community. I wanna put this up there so you can just see it and you can chew on this later. But community, the way we think of this here is that community isn't just like a small group. It's not just friendship. It's a relational space through which the commonality of God's love, what we hold fast to, is exchanged and offered. We experience something in this and then ultimately it gets played out in the world around us. And the funny thing about community People love to come and they say, oh, I went and I was looking for community. And you can certainly find it. But the odd thing or the interesting thing about community is as soon as you participate in it, it's now shaped by your participation. So sometimes we come and we participate in something, then we, we critique it, right? We were actually the reason that it might've been a particular way. We don't give any accommodation to that. There's a responsibility to showing up and participating because you bring something to bear on it. And the very fact that you participate in it actually shapes it. And the design of this is that the fullness of community flows out of your fullness and my fullness. And the way that we offer ourselves to one another allows us to experience this, recognizing that sometimes we need something from other people and we can't always be giving. We have to do both of these things. It takes, it's a very precarious way for us to relate and it requires us to commit, to stay in, to stay put. You know, honestly, one of the things that for me personally, um, I was told when I was uh, starting out in ministry, I had to do this like this class and take all these tests of what kind of pastor I would be. And this is funny. Um, I didn't finish all my sentences and I think this has probably contributed to it when I would do like a, a, a thought, I'd give them like a half thought. And um, and they said, you want to finish that sentence? I was like, what sentence? Like, right, I forgot. And um, they told me this. They said, Mike, we think you're going to be a catalytic church planter. That you're going to go around and you're going to plant a church every two years. And we were about three years in this church. I was like, dude, I haven't even gotten this one even remotely planted. I can't think of starting another one. But here's the appeal that you can just bounce around and bounce around and bounce around. The thought of being in a place for my whole life Right, all of a sudden begin to take root. They said, Lord, would you let me invest myself in one place? Do you know why? Because you have to like be known. You have to be willing to grow. You have to be willing to avail yourself. You see people in all kinds of, my kids have played sports with your kids. Right? I mean, all these all happen together in a community, living this out in real life. Some of you have been in our church for 20 years, right? God bless you. You've been listening to me for 20 years. You're like, oh my, so many, you know, four years in, you're like, oh, I hope he gets better. We're, we're in trouble, right? So, so I, I get it. But like good preaching and good music aren't the reason, aren't what's gonna make this church what it needs to be five, 10, 15, 25 years from now. It's gonna be the willingness of the people who consider themselves a part of this body to stay in and commit and to bring something to bear on this body so that the fullness that exists here actually fills everything else. Shared identity brings with it a shared responsibility that we all hold together. I think the better way of thinking about community isn't like just looking for it, can it be found, but rather to contribute to it and consider what you contribute to it. Community isn't something that is found as much as it is something that gets built and it requires something from you and of you, and it requires something from me and of me. Our devotions, Tony Ripper writes a lot of our devotions, and he wrote this last week. I thought this was such a great vision 
for what we hope for. In a culture, he writes, this is from Tuesday's devotion on our website. In a culture where so many long for authentic connection, the church has the incredible opportunity to be a beacon of hope and belonging. Can I belong there? This deliberate thoughtfulness will transform our faith communities, our church into these sanctuaries of encouragement and renewal that perhaps your family of origin has caused deep wounds, that maybe perhaps a family of redemption could bring about deep healing, something that begins to restore our souls. So what does it mean to belong here? I wanna close with, with this. This was something that was written down, I think in 1997, maybe 1998, about a year and a half or two years before uh, Port City Church was formed. I remember trying to imagine what we would want for people. I was, I was in a coffee shop. And I think Dudley tells this story at 101, if you've ever been through 101 with him. I remember sitting in the coffee shop and just thinking about the church and what the church could be. And my first thoughts weren't about an auditorium or attendance or music. It was about the people who were walking that coffee shop. And I began to just sort of project scenarios over them. A young family walks in. I would think, man, this family's struggling financially or they're trying to figure out how to raise their kids or maybe they're struggling in their marriage. I, wanna, I, I wonder what it would be like if our church could extend ourselves and be helpful to them. Or this person over here, maybe this is a single mom, or maybe this is someone who's struggled with addiction, or maybe this is someone who's struggling to find their career path, or maybe this is someone in a midlife crisis trying to figure out what to do with the next season of their life. What if we could be a place where we could just extend ourselves and be helpful to them? It was just thinking about what we wanted for the people who would show up in whatever capacity they would show up. And so I sat down and I wrote this out, and then we put it together so we could use an acrostic, because that was cool back then, R-E-A-L. And so what I want to share with you, and I want you to just consider, you have to do sort of your own self-assessment, but this is what we want. This is what I expect. And I don't expect this in a way like, you should do this or else. I expect it in this sense, that if you were to participate just to give yourself a little bit, to say, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna invest a little bit, that if you do that, I expect this will be your reality as well. And so the R is this, the R is that I want and expect and hope for you to have a relationship with Christ. I want every person to have a personal relationship with Christ, every one of you. I want you to be able to wake up in the morning and to be able to, to, to commune with God and to hear his voice and to surrender and to, to know that that particular day he has something for you and a life that he intends for you to live and to be able to discern what that is in all the moments of your life. That's what I want. Number two, is I want you to be engaged in community. I want you to experience this kind of reality. But I want you to be not just go, we got our little group over here. I want you to be vitally connected to what is happening in and through this particular thing that God is doing in this particular season. Vitally connected. Not, oh, I can take it or leave it, I can come and go. No, that your part actually matters. We wanna build the kind of connections where we become because you become. Is it complicated with a lot? Of course it is. That's just a how question. We can figure that out. But it is what God intends. It's what we want. It's what I believe can happen to us. A is to be active in serving. We did a whole series on this called Radical. This is the idea that we all have a sense of shared responsibility for the successes and the challenges that we face as a church. 
It's very easy to go, I don't like that, so I'll go find something else. It's a whole other thing to say, oh, I don't like that, let's figure out how we can roll up our sleeves and do something about it to make this what it's supposed to be. And it's so funny, I, I, don't, I get a lot of credit for a lot of things that, that happen. I, in fact, I show up in meetings and they're telling me what's going on. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. And, and I used to would say, oh, they're doing this in student ministries or they're doing this in Grozen or they're doing this down uh, with some of our partners. I'm like, nope, not anymore, I just say we. It's just a shared responsibility that we get, to take, we get to take joy in the successes and we get to feel responsible for the challenges, both those things. That's what we want. That's what we talk about giving ourselves and serving. And then lastly is the L, and this is just that we would leverage our lives. We would recognize that we have been given. Everything that we have has been graced to us. And so we wanna be strategic and say, Lord, how can this serve to bring your fullness into everything in every way, with my little part. I want for you to get to the end of your life and to be able to say, I think I did what God had asked me and created me to do. I think I became the kind of person that he intended for me to be. And my life was an expression of that. That's what we want. Sound good? So you, you, you have to kind of test yourself on that. Um, I gotta stop. This is very near and dear to me. I wanna read in closing this passage from Ephesians. And I want you to hear both the challenge and I also want you to hear the encouragement and the affirmation of what could happen as you and I commit ourselves to voluntarily give our allegiance to Jesus Christ and to do it together. This is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love putting up with each other, dealing with all the chaos that happens when people who don't always see the same way get together around a table. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one, to each one of us, grace has been given just as Jesus Christ, our King, apportioned it or intended it. It's sufficient and it's given, it's available. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. He gave them those gifts to equip the people, his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This doesn't mean that the body of Christ may get bigger or larger or more people. It means we'll be strengthened and empowered. We'll share vision. We'll cooperate and contribute together. The body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity and the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure 
of the fullness of Christ, right? And it's the fullness of Christ that he intends to fill everything in every way. Then, this is so good, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. It's interesting, we'll no longer be infants. People talk about not getting fed any, anymore, right? I don't get fed. I'm like, the point isn't to feed you, the point is to teach you to feed yourself, right? That's, that's the point, that we mature, we grow up, we become. We're not, we're not pulled into all the chaos of the polarization, the culture wars that everybody's gonna try to get you to participate in. We have a distinctly different way and calling in this, that there's a mature, we're not gonna be blown around by this any longer. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Jesus Christ. And from him, the whole body is joined and held together. That's the source, is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows, and I love this, it builds itself up in love. There's something perpetuating about the church. It builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Father, what an extraordinary vision that somehow we could be that. But the urging as we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received to belong and therein become. Father, would you do that in us as we give our allegiance to your son, Jesus. We long to represent you well in this world. We long to bring the influence of your love for this world. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our king and to whom we give our allegiance. Amen.